you would, uh, please turn in your worship folder to page 12 where you'll find our sacred reading or our scripture text this morning. How to close a nine-month sermon series on human sexuality. (laughs) Well, the end at the end, right? Hear God's word to us this morning from the book of Revelation chapter 19 verses 1 through 9. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The word of the Lord. Oh, Father, we pray that you would transport our minds, our hearts, our imaginations to this final scene of history. May you put us there as witnesses, as participants, and may you create in our hearts a longing a longing for this wedding ceremony. Wherever we find ourselves, God, help us to know that you, you invite us. You invite us to the wedding feast of the Lamb, not just as a spectator, but as the one being wed to our bridegroom. So meet us this morning in your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Human history begins with a wedding and ends with a wedding. At the first marriage, God created a man and he put him in a garden. And then he put the man to sleep. And from his side, he created a woman, Eve. And God brought Eve to Adam. They were naked and they were unashamed and they became one flesh. At the last wedding, God creates a new heavens and a new earth. And he takes the bridegroom and he puts him to sleep. And from his side comes the bride, which is the church. And just as when Adam saw Eve, 
He says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The poetry of seeing his bride at the last marriage. We hear the chorus of heaven which sings, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. History opens with a marriage and closes with a marriage, which tells us something about how our sexuality, our experience of attraction, is part of the deep plot lines of history. And it's not too much to say that sexuality, in many ways, bridges the ages between the heavens and the earth, between this age and the age to come. There's a way in which, as we learn through Scripture, that there's been this deep desire in us that's been dragging us and tugging us, pulling us and driving us to God in eternity, life with God in eternity. And the question I want us to wrestle with this morning, what comes of our sexuality at the end of time, at the end of history? What does it mean for human sexuality to find its Fulfillment, it's completion, it's consummation at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The best way, I think, to come about this is to dive into the rich metaphors that we discover in this text. And so I want us to reflect on the wedding ceremony, the bridal dress, and the bridegroom. And those are our three points. The wedding ceremony, the bridal dress, and the bridegroom. The first question I think we need to ask is what's the significance of the fact that history ends with a marriage. What does that teach us about God, about ourselves, our relationship with God? And I think that's the first question we have to wrestle with is, what is God saying about human beings and how he wants to relate to us? You know, during our service and our songs and our readings, we've heard echoes of lots of different kinds of ways that God relates to us. So for instance, in Galatians, we heard about our relationship to God as being like that of a father and a son. We've heard and sung about God being our shepherd and we his sheep. Or God being our king and we being his subject. Or God being a master and us his servants. But there's something unique about the depiction of our relationship with God as that between a husband and a wife. Because unlike all the other metaphors, which capture really important truths, it's this single metaphor and relationship that comes into the clearest and the biggest focus at the end of the Bible, and it is marriage, right? There's something about a marriage relationship that captures the intensity, the intimacy, the mutuality between God and human beings. That a parent-child relationship or a king-subject relationship, a shepherd-king or shepherd-sheep relationship does not. God desires intimacy. God desires us like a husband desires his wife, like a wife desires her husband. It's an intense, passionate relationship, one of unity and difference. And of course, in the Scriptures, this is a theme that that runs throughout, all through the Scriptures, but comes into focus in particular in the Old Testament and the prophets, the prophet Hosea, the prophet Ezekiel. Hosea says, describing God as a husband, 
who is wooing his bride, who is left. It says, therefore, behold, I will lure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth to you, you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. You shall know the Lord. And that word know, of course, in the Bible has, is the same word that is often used of a husband knowing his wife. Intimate knowledge. And as that is the kind of knowledge and relationship that God desires from us. And of course, in the prophets, Hosea in particular depict sin as a form of spiritual idolatry. Or, 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 or um, a spiritual adultery, rather. In other words, idolatry is adultery. So in other words, we often think about sin as rule-breaking or breaking a command. Like, I'm disobeying the law of a king or a government. But rather, it is that. But also, there's this other aspect that sin is actually me being unfaithful to God. Just as a husband or a wife that would be unfaithful to their marriage by taking up with another is unfaithful, there's a way that sin wounds God, breaks the intimacy in the relationship. And of course, as you see, if you have read the book of Revelation at the end, there's always these pairs of contrasts, and you have this reference to the great prostitute. The great prostitute, of course, is in contrast to the bride. This question of spiritual adultery, of unfaithfulness, to the very end, God must destroy it before the bride can come. And there's a kind of graphicness about the way that God depicts spiritual sin, the sin of adultery. Actually, a better translation than great prostitute is the great whore. Now, that's a very offensive word, but a prostitute is one who actually accepts payment for sex, and a whore doesn't. And that's a theme that runs through Hosea and Ezekiel and the book of Revelation that actually don't even need to be paid. Our unfaithfulness means that we just throw ourselves wherever. Whatever seems good in the moment. But I think it's important to sort of back up and ask this question. What do you think about your... What's the frame? What's the, if you were to ask, to, what's the metaphor for your relationship with God? What's the metaphor? And it, what, in other words, when, if you were to describe your relationship with God, would you use the language of a marriage? And could you say that in honesty? Or perhaps, is our relationship to God like, more like that of a therapist, right? Where we make appointments because I've got problems and I need help sorting out my issues. To, I need to be able to figure things out and God will help me. Or perhaps... Often our relationship with God is like that of a hairdresser and we, we go to from time to time because we need a new look and we need sprucing up. Or as I mentioned last week, kind of like a college buddy that you were very close with when you were in school and maybe you spent a summer hanging out with and you haven't talked to in 10 years, but you call him up and it's just like yesterday. See, the reality is, is that none of these relationships quite capture I, in fact, don't even come cl close to capturing the kind of relationship that God desires with us. Only marriage comes close.
because marriage is that one relationship that is all-consuming and all-encompassing of your entire life. There is no healthy marriage that ever goes on autopilot. It never can be simply a work relationship with somebody you see every day. There is a way that the marriage demands the totality of our heart. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And friends, I want you to consider this morning, what is the trajectory of your relationship with God? If all of history, the arc of history is moving and bending towards this marriage. Is the, arc of your, is, is the arc of your love for God, your relationship with God, heading in that direction? Revelation gives us a picture of history that is moving inexorably to a place where the greatest commandment, the one I just read from Deuteronomy 6, is the reality of the universe. And so the question is, where do we find? And what you'll notice in our text this morning is that there's these five hallelujahs, praises to God. And the first one is important because before the wedding can happen, before the marriage feast of the Lamb can happen, there's a judgment that happens. Hallelujah. God's just judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immorality. And that word is the word porneia, where we get the word pornography. And we know, um, I've talked about this quite a bit, it means all forms of sexual sin or illicitness. But in Revelation in particular, it has an even deeper meaning because it includes sort of the materialism, the violence, the injustice of the city of Babylon, which has polluted the earth. And God will first judge. And friends, we have to ask this question, where there's no such thing as being spiritually unattached. <laughs> you know, I think sometimes we do this with God. Somehow we, there's just no such thing. Either you have cast your heart in the direction of Babylon or in the direction of the heavenly Jerusalem. There's no in-between. That's the thing about the apocalyptic literature of the Bible. What it does is it pulls the veil back and shows us that actually there's just two sides. <laughs> there's light and darkness. There's the whore and then there's the bride. And the question is, where have you cast your life and your love? You cannot be spiritually unattached. Either your love and life is with God, or you're giving yourself to idols. But then we see this wedding feast of the Lamb. But those who are citizens of the heavenly city, of the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, they receive an invitation to the most spectacular wedding in human history. It quite literally is the wedding to end all weddings. It will end all of your weddings and marriages. Why? Because it will so far surpass them in its beauty and its glory and its pleasure 
that all of our earthly marriages, the greatest things, would pale in comparison. Now, in our text in chapter 19, we don't actually get a great deal of description about what this wedding feast looks like, but I want to offer you a couple other um, texts to, to look at. From Matthew, I'm sorry, from Isaiah 25, the prophet uh, writes, the Lord of hosts, and this is again a picture of this final feast of time, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples the veil that is spread over all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away all tears from their faces and reproach from his people, and he will take away from them all, take the reproach away from all the earth. And in Revelation 21, we have another description which resonates with this one. Chapter 21, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and he will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and the death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor any pain, for the former things have passed away. There's three things, I think, um, that this wedding ceremony points to. The first is this, is that at this wedding, unlike any other wedding, what is included in this wedding is the swallowing up of death itself. The swallowing up of death itself. This is a wedding that brings an end to suffering and death in the world. Because death casts its shadow over all love. To love is always to have death in the background. This was brought home to me in a very endearing way this past week. My daughter graduated from her third grade um, Montessori classroom, and she was in the classroom for three years with one teacher, Ms. Kelsey. And um, it was her first, Ms. Kelsey's first year teaching, and so this was her first group of students. And so all the students were doing their presentations, um, which was a, a final project where they were thing, saying the things they were thankful for, the things they learned, and advice to the younger kids. And uh, one little boy, and he wasn't alone, uh, was, got up and he was nervous and he read his, his, his thank yous. And all of them were thanking Ms. Kelsey and he in particular. And he was, he was weeping at the thought of leaving his teacher. Now, friends, in a sense, what, what this little boy and many in that classroom experience is their first taste of how love and death go together. That to love is, is to lose You can't love without the the threat of death. And and many of you have buried your parents, (laughs) or perhaps a spouse. All of you will hold the hand of your spouse someday as they are dying. Everything that matters in your life, everything that you love, every relationship will someday come to an end. Death will claim it. It will claim it. And thanks be to God that he allows some to continue for many, many decades. And yet they will come to an end, and there will be tears, and there will be sorrow. And yet at the, at the wedding feast of the Lamb, what happens? This is a wedding that takes away death, that swallows it up. It is a love that no longer has a pale of death that sh- overshadows it. 
It will be a love that is unbroken and forever. And it will be a love, and this is the second point, of unspeakable joy. It's a wedding of unspeakable joy. The roar of death is replaced by the roar of joy. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God reigns, and let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. There are times in life when we experience deep joy, incredible joy, and oftentimes it is at our wedding. But friends, none of us know what it's like to have the roar of joy constant. We know the roar of pain. <laughs> Many of you know this roar, and it is so loud that it's deafening, and it dominates everything. But someday, it'll be a roar of joy that will drown out everything, will drown out death and loss in a way that's unimaginable. A deafening, heart-sopping joy. The Apostle Paul says, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the man, heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We come also, the final point on this is that what we find at this wedding feast of the Lamb is the complete fulfillment of all of our deepest desires. The complete fulfillment of all of our deepest desire. If there's one thing about sexuality that we know is that it's about desire. Desire for the other. Desire to be united with another. To share, to commune, to be known. To procreate, to be fruitful in this world. And there's a way that you can live your life and you can achieve these things. And at a, at a certain level, you can have a great marriage, you can have children, you can have a satisfying career. But the reality is, and as you grow older, there's a way that you realize that there's still this longing, this ache, this thing that, that this itch that none of those things could ever fully scratch. And this is the problem when you're young, you don't know that, so you just keep driving hard. But oftentimes it's a gift when God, at the end of your life, gives you pretty much everything you ever wanted, and it's still not enough. It still doesn't really get because at the end of the day, God has created you with a desire for himself and that no worldly, earthly, material thing, however good it can be, can fully satisfy. It will never be satisfied until it is completed in union with Jesus Christ. I quote this a lot, but St. Augustine, you know these words, says at the beginning of his confessions, to praise you is the desire of man, a little piece of your creation, and you stir man to take pleasure in praising you. Because you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest with you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This, friends, is one of the central truths that runs through all, all of Scripture. The deer that pants after the water, right? Is our hearts are restless until they rest with God because you were created for God. At the end of the day, the first truth of your life, the very first truth of your life is that you were created for God. And the very last truth of your life is that you were created for God. And everything leads to this consummation, this full consummation of our desires. Only at the marriage feast of the Lamb will these be consummated and fully realized. 
But what should we be doing in the meantime? What, what does it mean for us to be longing and waiting for this marriage that is to come? We're supposed to get ready. We're supposed to get ready. I want to draw your attention back to verses 8 and 9 of chapter 19. And his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This brings us to that that image and metaphor of the wedding dress. And that John is depicting the wedding dress as that thing that we do, we put on in a sense. We have a role of putting on to prepare ourselves for Christ, for the marriage feast of the Lamb. And I, you know, this theme of clothing, of clothing oneself is a, an important uh, category and image of sanctification um, throughout the Bible. You think of where Paul in Colossians talks about clothing yourself with Christ, putting him on, clothing yourself with compassion and grace and mercy and forgiveness, taking off the old garments, right, from Adam, the old Adam, the tattered, soiled, stained garments and putting on the new garments of Christ and becoming beautiful. And these garments are nothing less than, of course, the Spirit himself, the fruits of the Spirit. Um, the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness, self-control, hope. All of these are, in a sense, garments. They're virtues that we wear. And you kind of learn to grow into them. Some of you who um, perhaps work in professions where you wear a uniform, like a t suit and tie or something like that, or, and at first it might feel stiff or uncomfortable because you're not used to the way it moves, but at a certain point you kind of grow into it such that it actually shapes the way you perceive yourself and others perceive you. And it's the same. And that's what sanctification is. It's a, it's a holy preparation. It's putting on Christ himself. The virtues, the fruit of the Spirit, which are nothing less than to possess the emotional life of Jesus Christ for yourself. That's what it means to have the virtues. That's what it means to have the fruit of the Spirit. It's to have the emotional life of Jesus Christ dwelling in you, feeling as he felt, engaging the world as he engaged it. And of course, um, in our text, you see the, the contrast with Babylon, right? That the city of Babylon is described this way, that great city that was clothed with fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and with jewels and with pearls. But, a si but in a single hour, she's laid waste. The reality is that, that oftentimes we're tempted to clothe ourselves with alternative virtues, alternative clothes, the ones of Babylon. And they're, they look beautiful, they're glittery, but there's a superficial attractiveness about it. There's a shallowness. And actually, when you go move towards the bright, glory of God, these garments just burn up. And they leave you naked. And just as Adam and Eve tried to put fig leaves on to cover their shame, the garments of Babylon are the same way. They will not cover you. At the end, they will leave you exposed and naked and shamed. Now, it's interesting that um, in the Bible, we begin with reflection and marriage on this idea of nakedness and clothing. And in the end, we see this as well, that there's a lot of emphasis on clothing and garments. 
when I preached on this theme of nakedness, naked and unashamed, one of the things that I argued in, was that Adam and Eve, though they were naked before sin, they were naked without, but they were not naked within. In other words, they, they didn't have clothes on, but they, what they had was glory. They weren't naked within. They had holiness. And that's how they were able to stand before one another without shame. Because they had holiness and glory. And when you look at the description of the bride that comes from heaven, this bride that's presented comes down from heaven, having the glory of God and its radiance, the most rare jewel like jasper and clear crystal. You have this picture of this bride, and actually the gown is bright white, and it's luminous. It's almost transparent. Why? Because it reflects the glory of God and the heavenly bride. Let me just reflect for a second on some of the practical, I think, practical implications or applications for this idea of us pursuing holiness in our life for the way we think about our sexuality today. And there's just, there's just two that I want briefly to mention. Holiness, that garment of righteousness, is the basis of intimacy, both with God and with others. See, the more, the more you clothe yourself with the virtues of Christ, which is Christ himself, the more capacity you have for intimacy, for vulnerability, for self-giving, for love. The opposite of holiness is shame. And what is shame? <laughs> shame is separation, disconnection. It is hiding. It is covering. The opposite, uh, you do, you're not known when you feel shame. You're afraid, right? And when we grow in holiness, not only are we not afraid to come to God and increase our capacity for God, but we also increase our capacity for intimacy, for vulnerability with one another in a radical way. And the second one is this, is that as you grow in holiness, you concentrate and you deepen, and in a sense, you, you strengthen passion and desire. As I talked a couple weeks back when I preached on chastity, see, Christian chastity, or the sexual self-control, emotional self-control, is not repression. It's not the repression of desires. It's, it's actually the, it is the disciplining of, of desire. It's, it's the focusing of love, just like you, you would have a, a vine, uh, of, of, like a wine grape, and you, you don't just let the vines grow anywhere and fruit anywhere. You clip it. You snip it, and you get it to grow in the right direction. And what happens is you concentrate the growth of the grapes such that they grow bigger and sweeter and stronger. And it's the same with desire and passion, is that when we grow in holiness, we grow in our love for God and for one another. Friends, are, do you struggle to feel love for God? Is this something you struggle with? Is it... And, and it's not all the time that you can always feel. And you shouldn't be led in your life by feeling, always. But there's a sense in which, though, that to be enraptured by the love of God is to have, as Jonathan Edwards says, the sense of God that presses down upon your heart. 
How do you go into a wedding at the end of history when you are cold towards the bridegroom? Again, how we prepare ourselves is through holiness, through putting on the garments, through the purification of our desires, through sexual character. Now, I know that many of you are perhaps thinking here, (laughs) I do not at all It's hard for me to imagine being a bride, a pure bride, a virgin bride, coming to the bridegroom. Because actually, I'm more like that whore. Spiritually, perhaps in reality, my, I'm stained, I'm damaged goods. There's no way that I'll ever be able to be presented in righteous robes of white. And that brings us to this, this last image of the bridegroom. How is it possible for a prostitute to become a virgin bride? How is it possible for a prostitute to become a virgin bride? Friends, all of you, all of Jesus, when he found us, he did not find us as virgin brides. <laughs> he found us on the street. As the unfaithful. So how is it that he turns us into a virgin bride? And I think the answer to that question um, gets at this idea, this rather strange metaphor that John uses, where he talks about the marriage feast of the Lamb. Isn't it odd that we're being married to a lamb? (laughs) Wait, Jesus Christ is actually a man. He's a man. He has physical human flesh in heaven now. And so why is it that we're being told that we're being married to a lamb? There's an odd mixing of metaphors here, but I think this is central because to answer this question of how is it possible for prostitutes to become virgins, you have to understand the identity of the bridegroom and the way that the bridegroom and the lamb come together. And I think the best way to... um, This is, of course, in the book of Revelation and apocalyptic literature takes categories and images and they smash them together because there's simply no reality that can comprehend what it's trying to tell us. There is no earthly human reality that we can point to normally that can capture this truth. And so you have to understand that it's a wedding of a lamb and it teaches us something. And of course, the the same author that wrote the book of Revelation wrote the Gospel of John and this theme of the bridegroom and the lamb come together in a very powerful way. And I think it's, I want to reflect on, on that in particular. So John the Baptist understands both aspects of Jesus' identity. He says, behold the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And then a couple chapters later, he'll talk about the bridegroom who's come for the bride. But I think this is most fully uh, illustrated in that famous miracle that opens the book of John. The wedding at Cana. You guys remember this story. It's the first miracle of Jesus. Jesus and his mother, Mary, are invited to a wedding, and all the disciples are invited as well. And they run out of wine. There's no more wine. And this is, of course, a catastrophe from a wedding planner perspective. There's no wine. The party can't keep going on. And so Mary goes to Jesus and says, can you do something about this? And Jesus' response strikes us as somewhat odd and perhaps a little bit harsh. He responds, woman, what does this have to do with me? Why are you dragging me into this? My hour has not yet come. 
You may say, what is Jesus talking about? My hour has not yet come. Those of you who are single, um, when you go to weddings, often you're probably imagining your own wedding. This happens even for me when I go to weddings. I remember my wedding. And what we have here is Jesus at a wedding, and he's being asked to do something, and he's thinking about his own wedding. He's thinking about what he has to do. When you get married, most of you know this, actually, uh, it's a big event. There's a lot to do, administratively speaking. You have to reserve rooms, you know, a, a place. You have to send out um, invitations. You have to get a caterer. You got to pick your dance. You know, all this, you have a ceremony to arrange. There's just all these things that go into a wedding and preparing for a wedding. And it can be kind of stressful, right? But in a, in a very, in a much deeper and more profound way, Jesus is thinking about what he has to do to prepare for his wedding. And what he has to do to prepare for it is he has to die. He has to die. He knows that the price he has to pay in order to keep the wedding going is his own death, the blood of the Lamb. And it's not an accident that when Jesus turns that water into wine, what does he take? He doesn't take wine jugs. He takes waters of purification um, jugs. Waters of purification. He fills them with wine, with water and turns them into wine. See, the, the only way that the wedding goes on is being when the bridegroom prays the ultimate price. And it's interesting that at the end of that story, it says that Jesus manifested his glory then. Manifested his glory. Because what we see is we get a little preview in the wedding of Cana of the final wedding. Just a little preview at the final. Friends, here's, so here's the truth. Here's how Jesus turns prostitutes into virgins. Here's how Jesus takes soiled, stained, sinful garments and turns them into a pure white broad. It's through the blood of the Lamb. It's through the blood of the Lamb. It's through the blood that purifies. The one who can make the vilest sinner clean. The love of the bridegroom. Not only does he make us loved, tell us that we're loved, he makes us lovely. What love can do that, friends? See, that's true sexuality. That's the ultimate sexuality of God and Jesus Christ, where he not only says, I love you, but he takes unlovable, unlovely, ugly people, and he makes them beautiful. That's the gospel, friends. That is the gospel. True sexuality is a sacrificial self-giving of oneself that drives us beyond ourselves it's an opening up of our life as a place where others can come alive and have life and love. It's a passion. And Jesus' suffering and death on the cross was the most perfect expression of his sexuality. This very act of Jesus loving and giving, taking our impurity, taking our shame, our weakness, and us getting his righteousness and his glory and his garments and his joy. We get his joy. Because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And it's shame, friends. That's all about the wedding. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, 
Surely I am coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask that you catch our hearts up to that heavenly reality of the wedding feast of the Lamb. May we, just as those in Cana had a taste, a preview of the great feast of the Lamb, may we, in our hearts, as we feast on him, on his shed blood, as we drink his shed blood and eat his flesh given for us, may we experience the joy, the great joy that was set before him and the great union that we will experience at the end of all time. In his name we pray. Amen.